0: Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 159. It's December 14th, 2015. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. In today's episode, I want to cover what's going on with the current markets with this extreme volatility that we're seeing where on Friday the market closed down 2%. Today it closed up almost half a percent. We saw the interest rates on Friday dropping as much as 4% and then turning around today and and bouncing up 4%. This is an extremely volatile market. It shouldn't be a surprise to anybody that's a regular listener to the Wellsteading podcast. The market has been trading in a very narrow range for the entire year and despite that really tight range that it's traded in, we've seen severe day-to-day and week-to-week volatility. That's being driven because of the overall global slowdown, the uncertainty of the action of various central banks, and the fear of lower oil prices and lower commodity prices eventually resulting in defaults and currency devaluations around the globe. Well, none of that's changed, and that's exactly why we continue to see the end of this year with little advancement on any of the major markets or the indexes, not only in the United States, but around the world. What I'm going to talk about today will be centered on the current activities that we're seeing in the marketplace, but I'm also taking a step back and I want to talk about things from a fundamental basis so that even if you're listening to this podcast sometime way out into the future, it's still relevant because we're talking about principles of the stock market, how human psychology and fear and greed play into it all. Also in today's episode, I'm not going to talk so much in specifics about things like interest rates or what's going on with oil prices because I've already talked about these in podcasts over the last you know, 12 months and I've also written about them over at investablewealth.com. So if I touch on a subject today and you want more in-depth information, just either go to investablewealth.com or wealthsteading.com. There's a search feature on both websites. Put in what you're interested in, see what kind of show topics come up from that, or just go into iTunes or however you normally get this show and scroll down and read the title of previous episodes. I've recently heard from some people in the audience and they're saying, well, John, why didn't you do a show last week? You know, these markets are going crazy they wanted to get my opinion on things and I appreciate that I'm thankful that I have loyal listeners in this audience that anticipate new episodes coming out but at the same time nothing in these markets are new these are the things that we've been talking about for months and weeks and that status hasn't changed or I would have come on and told you about it so right now is the market topping out is it rolling over Are we going on to make new lows well I don't know no one can know that we can't predict the future but we can assess current trends, we can look at price volume activity, we can get an understanding about the fundamentals of where profits are being made and where, the, and where losses are being created, and based on that, we can react. And in my opinion, none of that has changed over the last at least six months. So just recently on episodes 144 or 145, I talked about you know being aware of a market top. In episode 141 and 142, I talked about key signs that the market was going lower. In episode 140, I talked about the irrationality of stock prices. None of those things have changed. In episode 134, I talked about the profitability of the violent sector. That's where we talked about things like Smith & Wesson stock. And in light of you know some of the recent shootings that happened just in the last two weeks or so, well, you've seen the U.S. gun manufacturers' stocks you know, break out and go on to all new highs. Again, that was covered in episode 134. So we're going to touch on a lot of those same areas today, but I'm not going to go into specific detail. What I do want to emphasize, though, in this podcast is that I want you to ignore what the media is saying and all the hype they're creating about whether or not the Federal Reserve will raise interest rates. Again, I've written and talked about that a lot in the past. None of my thoughts there have changed. I just want to reassure you that this is all media hype, it's all sleight of hand, I don't know whether they do it purposely to deceive people or whether it's part of you know the crony capitalist Wall Street industrial complex I have no idea it doesn't matter to me but what I want to tell you is it's irrelevant it's not going to change the direction of the markets one way or the other Now, I'm not saying that come Thursday or Friday this week after the Federal Reserve makes their announcement on Wednesday, I'm not going to say that the market isn't going to go sky higher than it maybe is even going to collapse. Fear and greed does things like that. However, the fact that the Federal Reserve does or doesn't raise interest rates 25 basis points is not the underlying reason. There are a lot of icebergs out there in the economy, and interest rates aren't one of them. Interest rates are a result of what's going on. They're a symptom. They are not the underlying problem. Not in this economy. And whether the Federal Reserve raises or doesn't raise interest rates, I believe that the U.S. dollar will continue to be strong into 2016. Now, of course, it's going to have its ups and downs, just like it has over the past couple of weeks. But the bottom line is that all the major countries and all the minor countries as well, they're devaluating their currencies. They're doing it either to support their export businesses or they're doing it because of the major loss that they've had in exports due to a collapse in commodity or oil prices. And so as these other countries devaluate their currencies, by default, the U.S. dollar continues to rise. So whether we do or don't raise rates, we already have among the highest rates in the world. And so money will continue to flow into the United States, which will keep our dollar strong. Now, that's going to be a headwind to the multinational companies and to the U.S. exporting companies, but that's no different than what we've seen all year long. The other thing to remember is that regardless of whether these rates get raised or they don't, The Federal Reserve behind the scenes is manipulating what the market price on interest rates is because they have over $4.5 trillion on their balance sheet that they've accumulated through the three phases of quantitative easing that started back in, in 2008. They are not retiring that debt. So every month, when some of those bonds that they've purchased come into maturity, they don't retire that. They take that money and they, quote, reinvest it in the economy by buying more government debt and also by buying private mortgage backed securities. I think it was in the last two weeks of October I read that the Federal Reserve bought over $9 billion worth of mortgage backed securities. Now, why would they do that? They're doing that to prop up the real estate market. They're doing that to keep interest rates artificially low. $20 billion a month is significant. And when you consider that the European Central Bank is pumping out 85 billion euros a month, that the Chinese are doing everything they can to stimulate their economy, that the Japanese continue to do their Abenomics, which is just another word for quantitative easing, that depresses interest rates globally regardless of whether the Federal Reserve does or doesn't officially raise their overnight borrowing rates. So ignore the media hype. Money goes where it's treated best. And right now, the best economy in the world is the United States. Right now, the country with among the highest interest rates, and certainly the highest interest rates that offer the least amount of risk, is in the United States. So money will keep flowing here. The U.S. dollar will remain strong, and most likely oil and commodity prices will stay low. So ignore the media hype. One more thing on this obsession that we have with interest rates. Interest rates right now can barely maintain two and a quarter percent for the 10-year Treasury. Well, let's step back just a few years ago. Do you know, 2010 was a year that the economy was improving, the stock market did very well. The 10-year Treasury then was almost double what it is now. It was at 4% even in 2013 when the stock market went up over 30 percent well you know what the 10-year Treasury was at 3 percent and so for Wall Street and the media to be obsessed in throwing temper tantrums about whether or not the Federal Reserve can raise their borrowing rate by 25 basis points when the overall 10-year Treasury can barely maintain two and a quarter is ridiculous the problem in this economy is not interest rates The problem is a global slowdown that's emanating from China. And again, I've talked about this and written about this infinitum. What you want to keep your eye on is growth or the lack of growth out of China. And you're going to be able to see that by the price of oil and and by the price of commodities. Right now, they continue to go lower. People have been saying for over a year now, close to 18 months, oh, they can't go any lower. Commodities have been in a free fall since 2011. Oil has been in a free fall for 18 months. We may have bottomed out, but I don't know. It keeps going lower. We keep seeing lower lows and lower highs. Yes, at some point it will bottom out, but we're not there yet. And until we do bottom out, the general economy isn't going to improve. That's just my opinion. I've spoken about the relationship between oil and energy prices and how that affects things like the price of gold, how that affects general commodities. You've heard me talk in previous episodes about how shale oil pricing has come down significantly to where some of these very efficient hydraulic fracking operations are producing oil at under $25 a barrel. Now people thought that was unheard of. There were a lot of naysayers saying no we're going back to peak oil shale oil is just imaginary it's not true the the wells are inefficient they don't produce long enough well you've heard me tell you that it's not only the fracking but it's also the technology of horizontal drilling that's automated the process these wells can be functional and up and running in weeks or months at a cost of millions of dollars instead of the deep water drilling that we see from ExxonMobil that takes decades and requires billions of dollars of investment That's going to keep a cap on oil prices into the future. The only caveat being there is if we see a major conflict in the Middle East. That's always a wild card for oil. But right now, oil prices don't seem like they're going any higher. I certainly find it hard to believe that for long term they could be above $50 a barrel. Uh, We're we're seeing them now in the mid-30s. I wouldn't be at all surprised over the next few months if we saw them dip down into the 20s. Now, that may be a buying opportunity, but I'm reserving judgment until that actually happens. I don't want to get into these commodity markets too early because you can get burned trying to catch a falling knife. Here's an article that I just read the other day in USA Today. And it's talking about the continued low prices that we're seeing in North Dakota oil. And this is despite the fact that most of the oil wells in in the U.S. have shut down. We had over 2,000 wells operating in the U.S. Well, because prices have come down by more than 50%, we have seen about 1,500 wells shut down. So we're operating now with less than 500 functional wells. The others have been mothballed and they're waiting for the price of oil to come up. So the reason I think that oil is going to be capped somewhere around $50 a barrel is because every time the price of oil goes up one penny, well these oil wells that are already drilled and that are in mothballs, they get turned back on because the investments already been made, the pipe is in the ground, and the oil is just there waiting to be taken advantage of. Well this USA Today article says, and here's the quote, The local price as of last week in North Dakota was $27 a barrel. That's the lowest in the last seven years, unquote. And that $27 a barrel, what they're talking about, that's the average price of shale oil coming out of North Dakota. So that means that there are more efficient wells that are producing at even a lower rate than that. Well, I've been saying all along that these guys are going to be able to operate at 25 dollars a barrel or cheaper. Now, there are costs associated with getting the oil out of North Dakota because there isn't a pipeline, so they have to ship it on rail or freight, and you know that's why the price is depressed from maybe oil coming out of Oklahoma or from coming out of the Gulf of Mexico. But in any case, these companies are able to be operational at 27 dollars a barrel. This is a game changer, and I believe that it's long-term going to impact not only the future of the energy business, but the future of the manufacturing business here in the United States, around the world, and will have significant impact on the global economy. I don't see this trend going away. The other thing that I want to emphasize, and this is something that we talked about just a, a few episodes ago in the Wellsteading podcast, about the three most important sectors of the economy that was episode 147. I talked about the energy sector, the financial sector, and the technology sector being the most important aspects of the economy and the place that you wanna always focus on in the stock market. All the other sectors in the stock market, all the other stocks act as a supporting role to those three sectors. And that's true today with the tech sector and with biotechnology and you know whatever the existing technology is today, you know a hundred years ago technology meant railroads today it means computers and information systems artificial intelligence virtual reality social media you know whatever the technology of the time is that's what matters and that's how the economy grows is through the technology sector that's why it's so important the world runs on energy today energy happens to be petroleum-based in ten years, it may be solar or wind power or nuclear. I don't know what it's going to be, but whatever it is at that time, that will be the most important element of the energy sector. You know, a hundred years ago, it was kerosene and and before that it was people using whale fat to you know to burn candles in their home to to illuminate things. That was their source of energy. Mills had to be located along rivers to use water wheels to operate the mechanical functions of their factories. So the technology of the energy changes, but the importance of the energy sector itself never changes. So financial, energy, and technology, that's always the three critical things. The reason I bring this up now is because it's critical to what's going on in our economy. Now think back to to the dot-com bubble or the technology crash, the tech bubble crash of 2000. When we saw technology crash, that's a critical sector of the economy, everything else fell apart with it. Eight years later, when the real estate market fell apart and the financial industry broke down, well, what happened? It dragged the whole market down with it. Well, today, eight years later, we're in an energy sector crisis. And it isn't that we're in a period of scarce energy, that would be a problem, but it happens to be the opposite of that. We actually, at this point in our history, have too much cheap energy. Now while that is a good thing, it's causing deflationary pressures and collapsing of oil and commodity prices around the world. And it really isn't that we have too much energy, it's that we have a lack of demand because resources have been overdeveloped because of the malinvestment of all the central banks printing funny money. So we've drilled more oil wells than we need, we've mined more copper than the economy wants, We've dug more iron ore mines than than the world needs and more coal mines than the the world needs. We have overcapacity. We've overbuilt the system, and it has to self-correct. And so right now, we're seeing a collapse in oil prices, problems in the energy sector. And just like when the financial sector collapsed in 2008 and that dragged down the overall economy, And just like in in the year 2000 when the technology sector collapsed and that brought down the whole economy, well, we are likely to see the whole economy being brought down right now if this energy situation doesn't get taken care of. Now, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know if it will or won't get taken care of. But right now, there's too much slack in the system, and that's one of the major reasons these low commodity prices and low oil prices that are a threat to the stock market. So keep your eye on that. Forget about the Federal Reserve. Forget about interest rates. Watch energy. Now, there are people that are, again, trying to do a sleight of hand trick, and they're telling you that, hey, you can discount this because if you, if you take out the losses in energy, the S&P 500 is doing really well. It's seeing profit growth of 5 or 6% well you know what that may be true but a year ago these same forecasters were telling us that we were gonna see an 11 percent increase in profits on the S&P 500 and in actuality they're negative because they're being dragged down by oil but these prognosticators are saying what hey that oil it only affects 10 to maybe 15 percent of the economy take out those losses from oil and everything else is doing just fine remember The tech sector in 2000 took down everything else, even though everything else was doing fine. Same with the financial sector in 2008. When it failed, everything else went with it. If energy fails now, it will take other industries with it. I'll give you one simple illustration of this. You would think that with lower energy prices, transportation stocks would be doing better. That's exactly the logic that I applied exactly a year ago today when I was heavily invested in the transportation sector. That's when oil prices have been in a sustained fall since like June of 2014. It was a very profitable trade. But see, prices have fallen too far and stayed too low and they've actually had a negative impact on the transportation sector. Well, you scratch your head and you say, well, how can that be? Trucking companies should be more profitable if they're paying less for diesel fuel. Airlines should be more profitable if they're paying less for jet fuel. Well, yes, that all that's true, and the airlines do happen to be doing very well, although we are seeing them take a hit because they've overexpanded and people have gotten ahead of themselves thinking about how profitable they were going to be. But really, when you look at the transportation sector, the only bright shining spot is the airlines. The Dow Jones Transportation Index right now, year to date, is down almost 18%. Now, ask yourself: If oil prices are so low and if airlines are doing so well, then how can transportation stocks be be doing so poorly? Well, the answer is is that this is a very complex economy. Let me, before I can get to that, let me let me digress here a minute. I talk about very simple methods to building wealth. I talk about having 10 simple wealth building principles, the first 10 episodes of this podcast. I believe that. I believe that building wealth is a simple process. It's not easy because of human nature and because people don't want to do it and they're looking for shortcuts and they get scammed and ripped off and they're lazy, but building wealth is a simple process. It's just not easy. And you've also heard me say that the methods that I use, even though they're automated and even though I have some algorithms and spreadsheets and I do things with charts and technical analysis and fundamental analysis and trend analysis and all these different things, my process, my method is still fairly simple. I like to keep things simple and clean. When I started investing over 30 years ago, all I had was the closing price in the Sunday paper, and I took those prices and I manually put dots on engineering graph paper and I charted things out by hand, and I drew trend lines with a straight edge ruler. That's how I got started in this business. Today, although my techniques are much more sophisticated, they are not that much more complicated. It always comes down to price and volume action. It comes down to to short and near-term trends. And one of the key things always has been and will remain relative strength. So the actual way that I pick stocks and the price points and sell points that I look for, it's not a complicated process. I try and keep it as simple as possible because I get into the least amount of trouble that way. When I deal in things like options and buying puts and calls, I don't do complex, convoluted strategies like you hear these people on late night television trying to sell you you know $5,000 courses that are going to make you an options trading expert. I think that stuff is garbage. It's just my personal opinion. I have not met people that have made money off of that. I've met people that have pretty much gone broke doing those things. Whenever I use options, I use them in a very simple process. I might use a covered call or on the contrary to that, if I'm worried about a decrease in the market, I may want to hold those dividend paying stocks or I maybe want to invest it in a major index like the SPY, but I'm worried about a market correction and so I'll buy a protective put. Very simple strategies. What I'm trying to do is preserve my wealth and take advantage of growth. The reason I point this out is that even though that my trading practices are simple and very clean, my overall understanding of the global economy, or should I say my lack of understanding of the global economy has taught me that the economy is not simple. It's a very complex construction of paradigms that we can't even begin to understand. It doesn't matter what kind of artificial intelligence you're using or decision support systems or what kind of fancy algorithm or the, you know, what kind of high frequency trading computer you have. The world is just too complex to put in a simple model. And so my charting techniques are simple, but I do that with the limitation of knowing that the world is a much more complex place than I can ever envision. And so as I've said in previous podcasts, and I think there's even an episode entitled that, I trade as if I'm the dumbest guy in the market. If you get overconfident, at some point you're going to lose and you're going to lose big. So trade in a humble fashion, knowing that you don't hold all the cards, that you don't have perfect information, and that it's impossible for anybody to have that. None of us can see the future. No one is an expert. Let me tie this back together with what I was talking about with the transportation index. How can the Dow Jones transportation average be down almost 18% year to date when oil prices are down 50%? Why aren't they doing better? Well, it's because the world is a complex place. And while it is true that trains and planes and trucks and automobiles and all those things that operate on energy, yes, their, their operating costs are lower with a lower price in oil, but at the same time, Companies that make up that Dow Jones Transportation Index, they're involved in shipping freight. They're involved, in particular in the United States, in shipping oil. The Keystone Pipeline was never given authorization to be built. All the oil that's coming out of places like North Dakota and other places where the shale oil revolution is is taking place where there wasn't a historical infrastructure, of pipelines to take that oil out well they have to be shipped out via trucking companies or railroads and if you're not shipping out of all those locations because you've shut down 1500 oil wells well that's gonna have an impact on that sector the transportation business also because of all this excess oil it's created a glut in the production of US natural gas We now see natural gas prices below $2 per million BTU. That's prices that, I don't know, I don't think we've seen those kind of prices since the 1980s. That use of natural gas is replacing electrical generation from coal. Again, how is coal transported? Well, it's always been historically transported on railroads. If you're not shipping coal, then you need less railroads. And so that's affecting the transportation sector. The slowdown that we're seeing in China, it's resulting in less exports out of China and less imports into China. So that's affecting the ocean liners that that would transport that material. So even though oil was low, you can't just make a formulaic investment decision and say, well, that means that I'm going to invest in transportation stocks. Because if you had done that, your portfolio would be down right now over 18%. You are going to see oil fluctuate. It's going to be volatile. In any given day, it could be up or down 5%. If you choose to invest in it, either long or short, just be cautious because personally, I'm not jumping back in until I see some consolidation and some stabilization. And I think that's only going to occur after we see more mergers in that industry and probably a lot of defaults. That to me will be a key sign that it's time to get back into those kind of markets. I think right now is too premature. Look at what's happening here just recently. Freeport, MacMoran, and this is a big commodities company primarily involved in copper production and refining. They have a great deal of debt. Their stock price has collapsed. They just recently mentioned that they had to suspend their dividend. You're going to see more of that with these energy and commodity producers because they don't have enough cash flow and they have too much debt and they have to cut those dividends. If that isn't enough, then they're going to start defaulting on their loans, and we're already seeing that happen. Just this last week, there's been a real crisis occurring over in in the high-yield bond funds. We had a couple funds that, although they didn't go bankrupt, they've suspended withdrawals, and they're not letting anybody take money out of those funds. Well, that's going to put a chill on investors, and I think, rightly so, more people are going to be concerned about that. Remember, Mark Twain said that you should be more concerned about the return of your principal than the return on your principal. And for a lot of years now, people have been violating that concept because interest rates have been so low. A lot of older people, senior citizens, people that rely on dividends and, and they're on a fixed income, they're going out and taking on more risk to get a, a yield and a return because interest rates are so low. And so they're getting involved in these high yield funds, which they don't understand. High yield is just a euphemism for junk bonds. These things are high risk, and although they pay good dividends when the stock market and the economy is moving up, when we get into a crisis like we might be right now with oil, those things fall apart. Junk bonds year-to-date, the high-yield bond funds, if you were in that, you would have not only been suffering through extreme volatility week-to-week throughout the year, but you would probably see your fund being down as much as 12%. And this is people that think they're invested in something safe like a bond. Well, high-yield bonds are not safe. The overall market right now, the S&P 500 year-to-date, is down almost 2%. And so those of you that moved into bonds thinking that you're going to get a good yield and it's going to be safe, well, you could be down as much as 12%. You need to understand this as an individual investor because if more oil companies default or The corollary with the commodity companies, they're they're basically all in the same boat. If we see those defaults happen, these junk bonds are going to lose more money, and it could get to a point where we see entire countries default. Places like Brazil, their debt is rated as junk. All these great emerging markets that we heard so much about a few years ago, about how you should be diversified and how you should be in the growth sectors of the economy, you know, things like Brazil and Russia and China and India, Well, emerging markets have not been doing well for quite a while, and year to date, the emerging market index is down and tracking very similar to these high-yield junk bonds. Emerging markets are down over 18%. Take a look at EEM, that's Echo Echo Mike. That's the iShares Emerging Market Index. It's the key one that all the money managers follow. That is down, as of today when I record this podcast, 18.4% year to date. Well, how's that for diversification? And again, I don't think there's a bottom there. I don't think that's going to change. And we'll know that the changes come when we see more of these defaults, more consolidations in the industry, things will taper off, things will consolidate, and then, and only then, it'll be time to get back into these markets. To point out the complexities of these markets and how you just can't use a simple formulaic term like the media likes to use or you just can't focus on one industry, You know, forget all that media hype. Because another sector of the economy that's doing lousy is the small cap stocks. Now, again, with the strong dollar, you would think that these smaller capitalized stocks, the ones that are focused on the U.S., the ones that aren't involved in exporting, that they would be doing comparatively well to the S&P 500. That's what the media was telling us earlier in the year. And again, it's even something, it's a trend that I jumped on uh, late last year, earlier this year, And it was a profitable trade at the time, but I got out when I saw that trend was breaking. I don't believe in buying and holding a position when things change. Now, I'm not 100% sure why the small cap stocks are performing so poorly. I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that they got overextended, that their valuations were very high. Um, A lot of them are related either directly or indirectly to the energy sector. Remember, if we're not drilling all these wells anymore, if we've shut down some 1,500 wells, well, think of all the small businesses that supported those wells. You know, One of the bright shining spots coming out of this recession over the last six or seven years has been the fact that the United States has doubled its oil production capacity. We went from producing about 5 million barrels a day to nearly 10 million barrels a day. Just over a period of about six years, that created a lot of high-paying jobs, not only in the oil fields, but also all the corollary support businesses. All that pipe that was put in the ground, well, it had to come from steel mills. And there were a lot of engineering jobs and associated support roles that went along with that. Well, with all these wells shutting down, that's affected these smaller companies that were having uh, large profits and and good-paying jobs. Well, that's all been factored out of the economy now the russell 2000 index is down over 7% year to date that's at the same time the s&p 500 is down just under 2% so the performance there is worse by a factor of 3 so for people that thought they were going to get diversification by going into these smaller cap stocks or thought that they were going to avoid problems of the strong dollar well it just wasn't that simple it doesn't work out that way remember it is a very very complex global economy the simple sound bites that they use in the media, they don't work. You have to take a very holistic, humble approach to this. And then the last thing that I want to point out here before I sum this all back up when we talk about China is that despite the fact that the S&P 500 is only down you know, 1, 1.85 or nearly 2% year to date, with all this volatility we've had, there are particular sectors of the economy that have been hit severely and, and they are already in a bear market. So while many people in the media are telling you that things can't get worse and that, hey, we're only down 2%, and that you should just buy and hold through that, that's not a strategy that I subscribe to. I think that when we're in these troubled times like this, you need to get out. You need to sit in cash for a while. Why take the risk? Look at the S&P 500. Yes, collectively, because of some strong performers, just like we've seen strong performers over in the NASDAQ, it is only down, you know, roughly 2% year to date. But if you dig down into the numbers, you see some significant weakness down below the waterline here. If you look at companies that are currently have their stocks trading below their 200-day moving average, which is a key area of a bear market, well, you have over 300 companies. So that means that over 60% of the stocks on the S&P 500 are trading at or below bear market levels. To look at that another way, we have even more stocks that are trading 10% or more below their 52-week high. So what that means, you know, coming out of a really good two years that we've had in in 2013 and 2014, when the S&P 500 was going on to hit all-time record highs, you know, almost every month, well, all those stocks that made those historic 52-week highs, you have a huge percentage of them trading more than 10% below those highs. That's well over 60% of those stocks. And I, again, consider that bear market territory. Now, does that automatically mean that we're in a recession and the market's going to collapse? I have no idea of knowing. Remember, it's a complex market. But at the same time, I have very simple trading techniques. And one of those techniques is the concept of moving to cash during uncertain times. This is a theme that I've been talking about all year, and this is something that you can do on your own whether you're someone that trades individual stocks or whether you just have your money all tied up in a 401k plan in mutual funds with your employer. During these periods of high volatility, when we don't see a specific trend where the market is trading in a very narrow range like it has all year, when we're seeing from day to day and week to week high levels of volatility and when we don't see a major upside to the market, which has been the case we've been in all year. We knew that because earnings were declining in the S&P 500, that the market was capping out somewhere around 2130 or 2150 on the S&P 500. And so that meant that although, again, there were very good trading years in 2013 and 2014, things were starting to slow down and peter out. And so for 2015, about the best you could expect was maybe a 5 or a 6% return in your money. Well, why take that risk? If you've been making money the previous few years, well above average, and you're going into a year when it's likely to be an average or below average year, and in fact when we're in one of the longest bull markets in history at all-time record highs, and we're seeing a collapse in commodities and a collapse in energy pricing, and we're seeing an overall global slowdown, and it could be likely that the S&P could drop 15 20 25%, maybe more, well, why take the risk to make 5 or 6% when you could have a loss of 25%? It doesn't make sense. So a very simple and, in my mind, a very effective way to trade stocks, and this is a technique that I've you know, been perfecting over the last 30-plus years, is you get out of uncertain markets. You take the risk of going to cash, and maybe you'll take a hit with inflation. Maybe you'll miss a gain if the stock market goes up. But the key to making wealth is avoiding a catastrophic loss. And so I'll take a little bit of a risk of 1% or 2% inflation. I'll maybe miss out on a 5 or 6% increase in the general market. Maybe I'll miss out on a couple percent dividends from not being a dividend-paying stocks. But I would rather take that risk in any given year than lose 25% of my overall net worth because I bought and held. I don't want to buy and hold through bad times. I want to buy when things are appreciating and get out of them as they start to depreciate. This is a concept that I talked about in detail in episode 143. You want to own appreciating assets. Right now, it doesn't look like anything is appreciating. That's U.S. stocks. That's global stocks. That's commodities. That's energy sector. That's bonds. And so when you're in a situation like this and it seems highly unstable, very volatile, and much more levels of high risk compared to the very puny levels of gain that you might eke out. Well when I get to times like that I hunker down, I seek protection and the best way to get protection is to sell off my equities and keep them in a cash or a cash equivalent type position. Now I don't offer recommendations in this podcast, I don't tell you what to do, I simply tell you what I'm doing and I believe that these are still very turbulent markets and I would rather take the risk of being in cash or being in a money market fund. Or for those of you that are locked into 401k programs at work, you want to look for some type of cash equivalent fund. That may be a 30 or a 90-day government bond fund or a, a corporate commercial paper fund. What you're looking for, though, is short-term bond. That's kind of the key word you're looking for. So if you don't have a money market available, look for the shortest duration bond fund that your 401k plan will let you put your money in and you park it there and you keep it safe and then when the storm clouds blow away and you see things stabilize that's when you want to get back into the market now you're never gonna pick the top of the market to get out of and you're never gonna be smart enough to get in at the bottom of the market but there's a lot of money that can be made in the middle there and that's primarily how I've built my wealth over these last 30 plus years of investing you do it with moderation you do it over time you do it patiently So what I'm doing right now and what I've been doing for most of the year, I'm ignoring the media, I'm ignoring what the financial pundits are saying, and I'm watching commodity prices, I'm watching energy and oil prices, and in particular, I'm watching what's happening in China. If China can stabilize, if their economy stops declining, that'll be one of the key areas where we can know that the global slowdown is subsiding, and that will be a good sign. And until we see that, And we'll know that because energy prices and commodity prices will start to go back up when we see a consistent trend there, then we'll be able to reassess things and we'll be able to determine if it's safe to 100% jump back into the market. But until then, I'm reserving judgment, I'm remaining patient, I want to do everything I can to preserve my wealth during these turbulent times, and I want to preserve it because when these markets do turn around, there are going to be huge money-making opportunities So, I'll bide my time now. I'll tread water. But when I see the trend change, I'll jump in with both feet. So, forget the media hype, ignore the talking heads, don't be concerned with what the Federal Reserve does here short term. Watch China. And you know what? For those of you that don't want to watch it, not a problem. I'll be watching it for you. So, just keep checking back into the Wealthsteading Podcast. Watch my blog over at investiblewealth.com. I'll do my best to keep you informed. Well, hey, thanks for joining me. As always, until our next episode, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best of returns.